We're in Acts 9. Uh, we are going through the book of Acts. Um, we'll take a break and do a study on the work of the atonement in a little bit of March and April, but getting ready for the Easter season. A uh, good Friday service here. Easter celebration, of course, is April 20th, a little bit later this year. Uh, but right now, we're in the book of Acts. We like to go through books of the Bible, start up in chapter 1, verse 1, and walk through the whole Bible, uh, walk through that whole book at least. And we, have find, our, we find ourselves today in chapter 9, uh, part 2 of a very important event uh, in the life of the church. Saul, uh, the terrorist, the assassin, the madman, comes to faith in Jesus Christ, the one who thought he was dead and buried, now is alive and meets Saul on the road to Damascus. Saul later becomes Paul, so sometimes I mix those two together. It's the same guy. He will be called Paul the Apostle, and he's on the road to Damascus, and in his hand are formal documents, letters from the high priest, from the Sanhedrin, the the religious body, to go to Damascus to bring Jewish Christians in Damascus to justice in Jerusalem. So he's going from Jerusalem to Damascus, about 150 miles, about a week's journey. And this time, on his way, he comes face to face, or face to fist, with Jesus, who knocks him off his horse. And now this this man who, who was on his way to persecute Christians finds himself flat on his back, blind, And Jesus tells him, listen, I want you to get up and I want you to go to Damascus, this time not with letters in your hand, but holding a soldier's hand because he's blind, he can't see. He tells him, I want you to go to Damascus and you'll see a man there, his name is Ananias. He's a a devout man, he's a Christian man, he's a brave man. And the hunter, Paul, Saul, becomes the hunted and Jesus goes after Saul. We said he was kind of like, in that day, one of the most unlikely people to become Christians. And maybe you're here today, and people have said that about you. I know they've said that about me. They'll never become a Christian. And then Jesus shows up, knocked me off my horse, and uh, turned my world upside down, as he did Saul, the persecutor, the Pharisee. The one he thought was dead was not only not dead, Jesus, who comes to him in Damascus, but Jesus has the power and the authority to have this bright light shine Right out of the sky. And Paul gets a glimpse, which he will say in 2 Corinthians, of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And if anybody could say that, because he literally saw it, it would be Saul of Tarsus. It was there that Saul met Ananias. It was also in Damascus where Ananias was told by the Lord that uh, Saul will be an instrument. He tells him, look, I want you to go see a man. His name is Saul. He's praying. He's like, Lord, I know who that guy is. He murders Christians. You sure you want me to go see him? Yes, I want you to go see him. He goes, I have chosen him to carry out my name before the Gentiles, the kings, and and the children of Israel. And I'm going to show this young man, Saul, Jesus says, that he must suffer much for the sake of my name. Last week, we looked at a lot of that. We saw the amazing story of Saul's conversion, but we're not done. Today's part two, chapter nine, verse 17 is where I'll pick up. Verse 19, I'm sorry. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. This is Saul. And immediately, verse 20, he proclaimed Jesus, the one he was persecuting, in the synagogues, saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not 
this, the same guy, the same man, who made havoc in Jerusalem. Remember, he's in Damascus now. Who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name. And has he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound and bring them back to the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by the night, took him by night, and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was truly a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him and how Damascus, excuse me, and, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenist, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent them off to Tarsus. The narrative continues, verse 31 to close. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Last week, we looked at some elements of Paul's conversion. We saw that how Paul continued the persecution and was confronted by the real God. That's in chapter 9 at the beginning. Persecuting the church, and then he's confronted by the real God. Not the God he made up in his own mind, conjured up in his own thinking, but the real risen Lord of the universe. We said last week that not everyone's conversion experience... Not everyone's conversion experience has that same type of experience, being knocked off the horse. The methods and the processes are different, but there are some common elements for all those who have been truly converted, truly belong to Jesus Christ. And the first thing we saw is that this confrontation with the real God. Any person who's a follower of Jesus has come to the place recognizing that God is a reality and he is God, you are not. I remember coming to Faith in Ossining, New York, where I worked, and, and, and coming to the, to the place of, of, of a 12-year drug addiction and coming to the end of my life and looking up at that moment, all I said was, okay, God, I have no idea who you are. But if you're there and you're real and you're a reality, I need help. There was a recognition, a willingness to be encountered by the real God, not the God I made up in my mind. And every conversion experience is that encounter. There's also consecration, we said last week. A time when we've turned from our sin and yielded our life to the Lord. And Saul says to the Lord, we saw in chapter 22, same story, Lord, what do you want from me? What shall I do? Up to that moment, Saul was the king of his own life, and all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and says, no, I'm the real king. I remember early in my walk as a Christian. I remember saying things like, Lord, I, I need you to show me how to laugh again. 
I need you to show me how to cry again. I need you to show me how to have good relationships. I, I was 24 or 5 years old, and I had realized at that point that I had lived my life the way I wanted to live, and that I needed to start listening to Jesus and be consecrated to him and follow him and to know what he wanted in my life. Lead me, show me, help me. So it was a confrontation, it was a consecration in his life. Then we saw Paul, uh, excuse me, Saul, Paul, there was conviction of his own sin. There's a time in our lives as Christians, if we are genuinely following Jesus, that we recognize that our sin, our rebellion, our, our, our uh, stupidity is against God. It's personal. It's not so much, and although we do sin against each other, we even sin against our own selves, but it's personal. That I'm sinning against my creator God, who is holy. There's a sense of it's personal. I, I, there is, a, there is a, a reality that my sin is not just about me. It's more about how it affects my relationship with God. Fourth, we saw in Saul's life that there's a call. Every Christian, Paul's called in a certain direction, doing certain things. But every Christian has been saved to serve, has been called in to be sent out. That's why it's spirit-empowered mission. Saul was told that he will suffer and that he will be a witness to the Gentiles, to the kings, and to the children of Israel. Maybe that's not your calling. But we all are called in to be sent out. We're all called in to be sent out. And just like Saul, we too have people that God has called us to share the good news of Jesus Christ with. And, and, and we ended last week, if you remember, saying this. I said, can you imagine Saul going back after his conversion and reading his Bible? Remember, he's a Pharisee. He's, he's a brilliant Bible scholar who did not know the Lord. Right? So can you imagine him going back, reading his Bible, and for the first time he sees the Old Testament scriptures burst open, all pointing to Jesus. And that's where we pick up. Because one of the elements of Paul's conversion, and as for everyone's conversion, is that there's confession. There's confession. Saul will see, as the scriptures are illuminated by the Holy Spirit, exactly who Jesus is. And we're going to get a little bit more um, uh, deeper into the reality that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. So the first thing I want to see is the confession, the confession of Saul. For verse 19, for some days, right, he's with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately, what is he doing? He's proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues, and what's he saying? He is, Jesus is, the Son of God. All of them were amazed. Is this the same guy who, who wrote, wreaked havoc in Jerusalem? Didn't he come here for a purpose of, of binding Christians and bringing them to justice? <coughs> Verse 22, but Saul increased in strength, confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by what? Proving. Simbambazo means to prove, to, to join together. The picture of taking the Old Testament scriptures and now showing and proving from his Old Testament Bible that Jesus is the Christ. And he began to preach it everywhere. Now, let's, let's just think for a minute, all right? Because sometimes we, when we read the scriptures, we can't really put ourselves in that place. But let's think for a minute. Saul Paul is a famous Pharisee who's on his way to Damascus 
to bind, abuse, beat Christians, drag them out of their houses, which we saw earlier, and, and bring them to prison. Okay? Now, he shows up, just as he was expected, but he's preaching Christ. Like that, think about what that must have been like. Like if we knew somebody was coming in momentarily who had the authority and the power to drag us off and had the weapons to do it, so don't think about, oh, I'm going to be a tough guy, I'm going to fight, okay? No matter what you got on you right now, they have twice that, okay? So they're coming in, and all of a sudden, they march in, and they start declaring Christ. The synagogues must have been a buzz. Right? They're like, oh, yeah, wait till Saul gets here, huh? He's our Pharisee. He's our boy. He's going to take you guys to jail. And then he shows up, and he's like, no, let me really, Jesus is the Christ. Like, whoa, wait a minute. Time out. So you can imagine, I want you to think of the scene of what's going on there. This famous one is now not backing their position, the Jewish people of that day, but supporting the Christian Jews in Damascus, saying, no, they got it right all the time. I've been wrong. That's what's going on here. And he confesses two very important things. One, Jesus is the Son of God. Now, when Saul, the Old Testament scholar, said that Jesus is the Son of God, you need to know that it, it's a, it's a um, messianic, a distinctively Old Testament messianic title. Second Samuel 7 says this from the Old Testament. He shall build a house for my name, the Messiah, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's eternity. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Second Samuel, Old Testament. So Samuel talks about an eternal son sitting on an eternal throne. Saul knew that. Psalm 2. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now when the Bible talks about Jesus, the only begotten of the Father, it does not mean that he's been created by the Father. John 3, 16, he says he's the only begotten of the Father. Or the only, his only begotten son, I should say. The word begotten has a, has a prefix meaning mono, meaning only. And what this is talking about is Jesus' unique relationship with the Father. Okay, you and I, believers, have been born into the family of God, and we are said to be born of God, begotten of God, but we are not, and no one in this room is the only begotten of the Father. That's talking about Jesus' divine nature. We're adapted by grace. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We're now called children of God, but Jesus is very God of very God, as the creed goes. John Piper writes this, Begetting is a metaphor, a picture, that tries to hold together two biblical truths. One, God the Father is not God the Son, and God the Son is not God the Father. They are distinct persons, distinct centers of consciousness, and can relate to each other. But, number two, the Father and the Son are one God, not two, one essence, one divine nature from all eternity without beginning, end quote. So when Jesus is spoken about in the Bible as the begotten Son of God, using the, the figure from human language to make the point, he's talking about being of the same nature. Because if Jesus is eternal, which it says he is, there was never a time when he was literally, physically, as we would say humanly, begotten, because he always existed. He's eternal. And this title from the Old Testament was given to the eternal Son of God. Now, some of you say, well, that sounds great. Does everybody believe that? Well, actually, Jesus' enemies believe that. I know it may sound strange to you, but listen what his contemporaries who recognize his uniqueness as the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. 
on the day of uh, Jesus' trial, this is what the high priest said to him. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. You will see the Son of Man, another, another title, sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, speaks about the uniqueness of his relationship with his father. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my father. No one knows who the son is except the father and who the father is except the son and anyone to whom the son wills to reveal him. John chapter five, I want to hit this one hard because there's a lot of heresy out there. John chapter five, verse 18, states that when they were trying to kill Jesus, it was because, it says right in scripture, Jesus was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus never said that. No, even his enemies said that Jesus was making himself equal with God. So what you see is Saul of Tarsus, this Old Testament scholar, once the Spirit of God is baptized uh, with the Spirit, he is all of a sudden now his mind and his heart and the scriptures that he's been studying since he was this big come flooding in, and it points to the reality that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the eternal one that was proclaimed in the Old Testament. He would later write in Colossians 2 that Jesus, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He says in Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In Hebrews 1, it says that, that in the last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir and created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. John writes, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh, that's the incarnation, and dwelt among us. He tabernacled with us, and he is full of grace and truth. Saul's confession that Jesus is the Son of God means he is co-equal, co-eternal and, uh, with the Father. But Saul also didn't stop there. He proved that Jesus is the Christ. Now, words mean things. I, t- I have this conversation. In fact, I had this conversation this week down at Grapeville, one of the schools I was teaching at. We say things, but... We may say the same thing, but we mean something totally different, right? So we have to sometimes, I talk with people, especially in the ministry, and they'll say things to me, and I'll say, can you just explain what you mean by that, by that name or by that word? Because I just want to make sure, because sometimes you're sitting there, you're talking to somebody, and you figure out, we're talking about something totally different here. You ever do that? You're like, nah, something's not right. People say that Jesus is the Son of God. And they do not mean co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent. People say that Jesus is the Christ, but they don't mean that. When the Bible talks about Jesus being the Christ, words mean things, right? Jesus is human name. It comes from Yeshua, which means Jehovah saves. Christ is a divine name, translation, a transliteration of Christos in the Greek, which is translated as the anointed one. It's Hebrew for the Messiah. So Jesus Christ, you have the, the humanity, the atonement, because he saves, Christ being his divinity, all in that one name, points to the humanity of Christ, the atoning work of Christ, his death on the cross, and the fact that he's God, the Messiah, all in that name. 
John the Apostle writes this in 1 John. This is how important this is. You may see why are you belaboring this. This is how important it is. 1 John chapter 2. He says, I write these things not because you don't know the truth, because you do. But no lie is of the truth. Who's the liar? One who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. John is saying, if you confess to know God and you know the Son and all his glory and deity, you know both the Father and the Son. But if you deny Jesus being the eternal Son of God and the Christ, you're a liar. The truth is not in you. Jesus said to the religious leaders, you are from above, I am from below. You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. That's important, man. Uh, How many people want to die in their sin? Uh, I don't. So it's important we understand that he's preaching Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ. One cannot know God who does not acknowledge Jesus as the eternal God, capital G. There are a lot of antichrists in the world. For instance, Jehovah Witnesses, the Son of God, he's a created being. He's actually the archangel Michael. To the Mormon church, he's the Son of God, but a polygamous man with a half-brother of Lucifer. To the Unitarians and the Universalists, Jesus is a sweet, wonderful guy with a button-up sweater and wants you to be his neighbor. I mean, that's who they conjure up him to be. Scientologists say that Jesus was an implanted force upon a a thetan more more than a million years ago. I have no idea what that means, right? I stopped taking mushrooms a long time ago. Um, They say, Hindus say that Jesus is one of many avatars. Baha is a manifestation like Krishna. Buddhists will say he's an enlightened man. Muslims will say Jesus is not this God, but a good prophet, even lesser than Muhammad. It's important we get this right. That's why I'm spending so much time on this. Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. That's why they murdered him. That's why they're going after Saul. He's the eternal son of God, been proclaimed in uh, the Psalms, claimed in in 2 Samuel, in Daniel chapter 7. You can look that up as well some other time. But Jesus said to the Pharisees, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. They didn't go, oh, that's good. Let's talk about the relative perspective and the philosophy. They picked up stones to murder him. They knew what he was saying. The I am, I am comes from the Old Testament. Remember the story with Moses, right? The burning bush. Moses goes up to the burning bush. And if you were in the wilderness and you saw a burning bush and he started to speak to you, you would ask the same question. Who are you? <laughs> right? Like, you just talk to me. And God says, I am. Never had a beginning, never have an end. That's what it means. It's eternal. I am who I am. And Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. That's why they tried to kill him. So it's really important that we get that right. Saul the apostle, the Pharisee, the Bible scholar, very important. Jesus is the Son of God. The eternal, co-equal, co-eternal, God in the flesh become man to die for our sins. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. Very important. Number two, and it will be a little bit shorter, just in case you're wondering. The confession of, of, of Saul. Then we go with the communion of God. Look at verse 22. But Saul increased all the more, confounded the Jews, lived in Damascus, proved that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. There's a shock. 
You know, that's like a hitman going, somebody going after another hitman, right? And their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates at night, day and night, in order to kill him. Now, in order to put this in perspective, and what I want to see about the communion of God, we have to go to Galatians chapter 1. If you have a Bible, you want to turn there. I don't usually do this, but this is important because Paul is going to write letters while he's a Christian and wrote, I think, 13 letters out of the 27 letters. And in Galatians chapter 1, we read this. And you'll see how this ties in. In Galatians chapter 1, Saul, Paul, now Paul the Apostle, writes this. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, writing to the church of Galatia, that the gospel that was preached by me is not a man's gospel. Not the good news somebody thought up. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember, you saw him on the road to Damascus. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, and people extremely zealous for what I was uh, doing in the traditions of my father's. But when he, that's the father, who had set me apart before I was born, called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, talking about his salvation experience, in order that I might preach among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia then returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, which is Peter, and remained there for 15 days. So, I say all that because if you've got your Bibles open again to Acts, you'll see in chapter 9, verse 26, it says, and when he had come to Jerusalem. So somewhere between verse 21 and 23, while he's in Damascus, growing in strength, verse 23, many days have passed, somewhere in that time frame, Paul lets us know in Galatians that there was a three-year stint that took place during that time, and part of it was spent in Arabia. So he went from Damascus to Arabia, back to Damascus, then we pick up in verse 26, and then to Jerusalem. So there's three years in between, verse 21 and 26. Okay? That's important. Because going to Arabia means something. And I think for Saul, Paul... Before he was going to launch into the service of our God, there was some instruction he needed, but first he had to spend time alone with Jesus. Communion with God. A lonely stint in the Arabian wilderness. More specifically, the Sinai wilderness. Going to this place, this geographical region, must have been an, had an enormous impact on this man. An enormous impact on this man. Think about it. This was the place. This was the same place. The Sinai that the great lawgiver of the people Moses. To whom Saul also belonged. Had spent 40 years in preparation for service there. Additionally it was from that same district. That the great figure of, of, next in the history of God's people. Elijah the prophet suddenly appears. And gets instruction. Both Moses and Elijah, we know, are the, are the great lawgiver and the prophet who, who were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And these men, Moses and Elijah, received the training in the desert for their ministries. Kent Hughes writes this. I thought this was good. He says, there is a divine poetry here. At Mount Sinai, excuse me, at Sinai, Moses received the law. Now at Sinai, Saul learns about grace. 
So like Moses, Saul apparently went into the wilderness communing with God before getting into the full service of the Lord. And I don't think it's too far fresh. We don't know what happened there. We don't have any record of it. But just think about this man's life. 35 years old, possibly around. You know, since he could talk, reading the scriptures, a Pharisee, a religious leader, a famous religious, and now converted to Christ, just a time of communion and rereading the scriptures and seeing over and over how Jesus is the fulfillment of all kinds of prophecies. It must have been an incredible, I'd love to have just his notes. You know what I mean? Just his notes. The entire time spending with his Lord. Communion with God is not only important, but it's an element of true conversion. If you're a follower of Christ, a genuine follower of Christ, you desire to spend time with God. It's really that simple. We saw it back in verse 11. Saul was blind, refusing food. He was at the house of Judas on Straight Street. And what was he doing? He was praying. Now he's off praying again. His entire world had come crumbling down and now it's time to rebuild it, but rebuild it from the perspective of his creator God. The author of the, his Old Testament scripture. And he met and he talked with him and he communed with him. So I thought, what can I share with you this morning about communion with God? So you know what? I'm going to let the late pastor who went on to be with Jesus, Adrian Rogers. Adrian Rogers gives five things, and if you're taking notes, you can write jot these down. Adrian Rogers, Bellevue Baptist Church pastor, gave us some great advice to commune with God, and of course, like a good Baptist preacher, he does it in a really cool, alliterated form, which you'll see, right? Like every good, every good preacher does. Okay, commune with God. There we go. Number one, you want to have a quiet time with God, you want to spend time with the Lord, Saul needed to do it, Jesus needed to do it, we need to do it. Number one, have the proper period, okay? Find the right time, that's what he says. If you're going to have communion with God, like Saul had to find time, we need to find time. We don't try and make time during the day, we we make time for God. Because if you're anything like me, and I'm sure some of you are, you make lists, you get things done, and when you're all done with your list, it's like quarter to 11, and you're done, right? right? But it should be our very best time, right? It's not finding time, it's making time. It's making it a priority, okay? It's making a priority maybe in the morning. Morning's a good time. Spending time with the Lord. Maybe some of you are not morning people, and you want to do it in the evening. Psalm 5, I got a word for you, just in case you're one of those people. <laughs> oh, Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Morning's a good time, but that's up to you. Number two, proper preparation. A quiet time is communion with God. There are things that we need to do. We need to be physically alert. Right? Not like, uh, I can't really pay any attention. You know, I'm not even, what am, I, you know, what am I reading here? You know, get your drink. Do your espresso, whatever, your monster drink. Whatever you do to get the cobwebs out of your head, you know, Prepare, be physically alert, be, be mentally alert. He says, uh, Agent Roger Rice, be morally and pure clean. There's something that's on your heart that's keeping you from God. Confess it, repent of it. So you need to have a proper finding the right time. Be alert. Third one, proper place where you can focus. Jesus talks about going in the closet. Find a pace of isolation. Agent Rogers, Rogers, Adrian Rogers writes, where you can shut the door on the world and open the window to heaven. If you know anything about Adrian Rogers, he's got those one-liners that are just great. 
you know, shut the door on the world and open the window of heaven. Jesus, the eternal son of God, went off alone to the mountain to pray. How much more do we? Number four, the proper provision. You need the right tools. Get a Bible that you can write in. Get a Bible that you can, you know, that you know. I know some of you come here and grab a Bible in the back. It's for you. We want you to have it. We want you to have your own Bible. One that you read. One that you know everything is. One that you have notes in. Get a journal maybe. Write things down. What, are you, what, are, what is God showing you? What is God, you know, what, what's going on in your life? These are all great things to have a communion with God. Number five, the proper procedure. Be still. Focus your mind. Calm down. Relax. Recognize his presence. Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. Focus your thoughts on the Lord. It's always good to open your Bible and have communion with God by opening in prayer. I get that. But save the list till later. Right now, soak in what God has to say to you first. And I'm not saying this because that's what you have to do. All the pastor told me, I'm not saying that. It's just ideas, thoughts, okay? Open your Bible, pray, and then read Scripture. See what God wants to say to you. Meditate on His Word. Ask questions like, what is it you're trying to show me, Lord? What is it that I'm supposed to obey here? What is the promise I'm supposed to claim? What is the lesson I'm to learn? What's the truth that I need to declare to somebody? And then pray. And then finally, Adrian Rogers ends not only these five things, but he says, always end with obedience. Respond in obedience. He says, your spiritual train is running on two rails. One is revelation, that's the scripture, and the other is obedience. And if either rail stops, your train stops. Listening, responding, listening, responding. Looking at the gospel, looking at and communing with God and how all that God has done for you in Christ. And respond not because you have to, but because you get to. Not only because you have to, because you get to. Because God loves you so much. Out of grateful, grateful hearts, we respond in obedience to him. Remember, religion is I obey, therefore God will love me. The gospel is God loves me, and therefore I will obey. Huge difference between the two. Saul was prepared, spending time alone with the Lord. Kenton Hughes writes also, Saul has now received his DD, doctor of, the, of desert, and was moving toward effective services for the Lord. So last, let's look at the conspiracy together. Verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, and their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. And his disciples took him by night and let him down through the opening in the wall, lowering him in the bucket, now in the basket. Now, if you remember, you know anything about the Old Testament, there was cities with walls around them, and inside the walls there were houses being built inside the wall. We saw that in Joshua chapter 2, verse 15, where Rahab lowers the Jewish spies down the wall. 1 Samuel chapter 19, Michael lowered David through the window to escape from King Saul. So here is Saul being persecuted. He used to do the persecution. Now he's being persecuted. And he is responding to the call of God that he is supposed to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And he has a lot of work to do. And rather than fight like Stephen did, who took it on the chin and died, Saul's like, you know what, get me out of here because we got a lot of work to do. It was once said, the, the man who flees can come back and fight another day. And that, that's the position Saul took. And Saul the hunter becomes the hunted, this time not of God, but his enemies. And, and as I read the story this week, I was reminded that way too often we, as Christians, when we invite other people to, to, to follow Jesus, to love Jesus, to turn to Jesus, 
we, we tell them all the good stuff, but we, we fail to tell them that there's adversity out there, that trials and tribulations will come. And because then when it happens, sometimes they're like, oh, I, I, I thought everything was going to be great. There was going to be no problems anymore. You know, doesn't God love me? Then why am I having all these trials and tribulations? It's part of being a disciple of Christ. And, and we need to be careful that we, we tell them the whole gospel and the whole truth about the gospel. Verse 26. And when he came to Jerusalem, right, they lowered him out of the bucket. He came to Jerusalem. Let me get that. It's not moving there. This thing is not working very well. Okay. When he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Now, listen. He's in Damascus. He disappears. He comes back to Damascus and goes to Jerusalem, and they're like, wait a minute. Time out. We heard about it. Then we heard you disappeared, and now you show up again. Uh, We're not really sure about you. Fair, right, you think? Like, uh, you know, uh, we're not really sure. Are you, you the guy that wants to kill everybody? Are you trying to get in? What's going on? Verse 27, key. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, said it must have been some communication there, who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So there was a time that they were afraid which is totally understandable, but there was a time then that Barnabas comes along and, and, and Barnabas kind of opens the door for him. And the Jewish people, both in Damascus, now in Jerusalem, are livid. I mean, I, they might even have been more of a frenzy than when they murdered Stephen, because here's their man. I mean, Paul just left a few years ago, zealot, Murdering Christians with letters. Now he's coming back doing the very thing that he went out to conquer. No wonder they want to kill him. Right? But along comes Barnabas, son of encouragement. He threw caution to the wind. He sought after Saul, heard him, and was convinced. He comes along Saul, listens to his testimony, hears his heart, sees the work of God in his life, and, and a lifelong friendship develops. In fact, they work together in Antioch and go on the first missionary journey. He was able to forgive. He was able to look past uh, 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 Paul's reputation and see what God was doing in his life. L- let, me just, let me just say something here, if I can. When we talk about discipleship, we talk about what's going on here between Barnabas and Saul, it takes two, okay? It takes the mature Christian who understands scripture, walked with Jesus, has some experience, and it takes the young, immature Christian who's looking for some guidance and some help. It takes both. Oftentimes in churches, the older, mature Christians don't want nothing to do with the younger guys or the younger girls because they're making a lot of mistakes and they don't have a lot of patience with them and and they want them to be this mature person, which they're not because they're new in Christ. And when I say new in Christ, I do not mean age, physical age. I'm talking about walking with Jesus. You could be 45 years old and be walking with Jesus for six months. You could be 30 and walking with him for 10 years and know the Lord and mature. What it takes is both. It takes the older Christians to say, I need to be patient. I need to love. I need to share experience. I need them to have room to fail, room to grow, room to say stupid things. I'll look at them like, really? Now, you may not believe this, but when I was a new Christian, 
I was a hothead. <laughs> it's not that funny. But I needed someone to come alongside me and tell me what I needed to hear. Pastor Sam Bellavia is my friend today. He's a spiritual father to me. He has stopped so many times, looked at me with that look of derision. Like, really? I'd be like, I'm not right, am I? No. All right, well, show me. He loved me, and he showed me in Scripture. So there needed to be that willingness of coming along, being patient, working with that, you know, hard-headed kind of think I know everything, but there needs to be that young person who comes along and gets saved, like me, who thinks to know it all, to say, I need to humble myself. I need to listen more, shut my mouth, and hear what you have to say and speak into my life. I give you permission. It takes both. In a church, a lot of times, I've been in ministry not very long, but long enough to know that sometimes there's one or the other. There are mature Christians who, who, who you know, want to reach out, who are there for a younger kid, and there's younger, younger Christians that want nothing to do. Well, then they're younger Christians. So we need both here at King's Chapel. And, and, and I, I know uh, not all of you, but most of you, to say you're somewhere in there. There's some mature Christian even come along younger Christians. Some younger Christians come along older Christians. We do that in community groups. Community groups are made up of all kinds of different age and, and, and spiritual years for that reason. Because if you put a bunch of kids together or younger people together or newer Christians together, no one knows anything, it's going to go crazy. But then you put all the people together who've been a Christian 30, 40 years, there's nobody there to really teach them too. So it's kind of a, as disciples, we have to be discipling, recognizing that. It's very, very important. Okay, very, very important. Now, I don't know how many young people just walk away from church because they're discouraged, but I'll tell you in a book called called Mentoring by Ron Lee Davis, the number one reason seminary graduates leave the ministry is the pressure of criticism. Not encouragement, it's the opposite, right? That's hard. Verse 29, he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. Okay, so they're after him. Verse 30, when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So Paul is being persecuted everywhere he goes. In Damascus, he's being persecuted. In Jerusalem, he's being persecuted. It was John Stott who said, what a strange irony this situation. The story of Saul's conversion in Acts 9 begins with him leaving Jerusalem with an official mandate from the high priest to arrest him, to arrest Christians, and ends with leaving Jerusalem as a fugitive himself. That's how the story begins and ends. And look at verse 31 to close. Let me, let me do this one as we close together. Verse 31, everyone. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, Samaria, had peace. It was being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now the term here in verse 31, the church, ecclesia, is actually singular. The church which is not usually the case, only one other place. Ecclesia, the called out assembly, the community of believers, because it is singular here, it's pointing to the picture of one church in three separate locations, Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. The universal church of all believers, that's what that Luke has in mind, that there's one church, one body, one Lord, one faith, and there are multiple locations where they meet, but there is one church. Generally in the New Testament, it's talking about local congregations, But here and a few other places, he's talking about one universal church. And that church is spread to Galilee, Samaria, moving outside of Jerusalem, following the outline in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, from spoken from our Lord Jesus' mouth. And in this context, you can see it's it's a church on mission. And right now, they're experiencing a couple things. One, they had peace. 
You know, sometimes the Lord gives peace after a storm. Kind of just get ready, kind of. We've experienced that here at this church. We've had things going on, and it was tribulations, some trials, and then it's a time of peace. You're like, ah. Oh. You know, strengthening and praying and growing, and things are happening that, that there's peace. It says they were being built up. They were being edified in the faith. They were growing in the strength and in, and in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were being built up. It says they were walked in the fear of the Lord. That means that people in the community saw the congregation gathering, recognized that those people feared God. And I meant that as a reverence to God. They, they revered God. They recognized God as creator God, as, as the God of the universe, and they, and they respectfully worshipped him. They walked in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I love that. They were joyful in, in the Lord. Even in persecution, they had joy, but now in rest and prosperity, they're experiencing the joy and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Number five, they multiplied. Sometimes the church multiplies in persecution. Sometimes the church multiplies when there is peace. This story is a wonderful story of conversion. But let, let, me, let me say this as the band comes up. Let me, ask, let me ask you these two questions, okay? Just bear with me another minute. Two questions. One is, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and the, the conversion that we've talked about has been part of your life, it's by grace alone, okay? It's by grace. Have you ever really taken seriously the fact that God saved you so that you can serve? That God called you into the gospel so that you can be sent out? That the gospel is not something that we just hold in a holy huddle, but the gospel is something that we are to be gospelizing and watching the church multiply. Not for our own glory, not for the pat on the back, look how good we're doing, so that people can escape damnation, hell, and have their sins forgiven. If you have never done that, I want to call you to that today. We're going to have a time of response and and a time of confession and repentance that you have have not done that. I have not done that. And that we want to respond in faith so that we can look for avenues and ways that we can share the good news of Jesus to our friends and family. Secondly, second question. Have you ever responded to Jesus? He is Lord of the universe. He's the eternal Son of God. He is the Messiah He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scripture. He is the one who became man, who died on a cross, paying the debt and penalty, taking our punishment and the wrath of God on himself for our sins, buried three days later, rose from the grave, and now he's ascended at the right hand of the Father. As I've said this a hundred times, that's not advice. It's good news. It has already happened. You and I need to respond to the good news. Not advice. Will you respond this morning and trust Jesus? Will you turn from your sins and and trust him? Will you recognize his death in your place, risen from the grave, exalted over heaven and earth, yield your life to Jesus, give your life to Christ this morning if you've never done that? Let's pray. Lord, as we play this next song, as we reflect and go to communion, We recognize that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So, Father, we 
want to join you on mission so that we may declare the good news of Jesus. We pray. Times that we have failed, times that we have not spoken when we should have spoken, Lord, we pray, not only for your forgiveness, but for the empowerment of your spirit to give us boldness in love to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that uh, those who have never responded, that your spirit now would draw them closer to Christ. As we go to the table, we recognize the broken body and the blood that was shed. Father, may we experience it personally for us, personally in recognizing the great salvation that you have provided. In Jesus' name.